Hello and welcome to the commentary for lesson 379. Uh, we did some 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and we uh, also did Isaiah chapter 13. And the part in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is just very brief. It talks about the death of King Ahaz and the transition of power from him to his son Hezekiah. And if you're like me, I read that and I thought, wait, King Ahaz is still alive? I thought he died already. And the reason I thought that was because I remembered that the Second Chronicles version of that record added the fact that he was buried in Jerusalem and not in the royal cemetery of the kings of Judah. That seems familiar to me. So it's quite possible, and this note kind of lets us know, it says this collection of Isaiah's prophecies may have been given around the time of Ahaz's death in 17. 716 BC. So maybe we have seen this before um, and it's put in two different places. I don't know. I wasn't going to dig into it, but just in case you were wondering, Ahaz is now dead. Okay. So that seems kind of like a side plot, but then we go to the bulk of the, of the reading today, which is Isaiah chapter 13. And I went to Easy English for my research for this one. And it points out that the next major division of the book of Isaiah is chapters 13 to 23. So that starts here and that those 11 chapters are about the history of foreign countries that affect Judah in some way. So Isaiah's goal here is not to give the complete history of these other countries, but to explain how God does in fact control their actions and that God has constant care for his people. Verse 1 starts, starts off, Isaiah, son of Amos, received this message concerning the destruction of Babylon. So God gives a message to Isaiah. It's about Babylon. He's telling him um, they are headed for destruction. Easy English pointed out that the ancient city of Babylon was on the Euphrates River in what is now modern-day Iraq. And from the beginning, the rulers of Babylon had proud ambitions that led to very serious results for many other people. In Genesis 11, we learned about the Tower of Babel. So that supports, if you remember that story, that the people built this tower and they wanted to build it up to the sky. And they were just thinking they were all so smart and they were arrogant and prideful. So apparently this, this pridefulness has been a consistent pattern with the people of Babylon. So yeah, the Tower of Babel was in Babylon, so that goes along with uh, what we know of them. And so they are still, even in Isaiah's day, full of pride. And they cause constant trouble for Assyria, which is the ruling power at that time. And so God's message helps Isaiah realize that Babylon would soon be Judah's real enemy. And we'll read more about that in chapter 39. That'll come up again. So something really interesting, I thought, was that if you go back to um, Genesis 10, verse 1, and then verses 6 through 12, we learn something about Babylon, okay? Um, who lived in Babylon? Who were those people? Believe it or not, they are the descendants of Noah's son, Ham. 
Okay, Genesis 10.1 says this is the account of the families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. Many children were born to them after the great flood, which makes sense, right? God said, go forth and multiply and populate the earth, um, repopulate the earth. And so I'm sure they did have many, many children. Then if you go to Genesis 10 verses 6 through 12, this is what's interesting because this is the history of Babylon, which is now being set for destruction. Verse 6 says, the descendants of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, I don't know if I said that right, Put, and Canaan. Um, verse 8, Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod. This is funny. That's a horrible name, right? Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. Verse 10, he built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia with the cities of Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, from there, he expanded his territory to Assyria, building the cities of Nineveh and then a bunch of other cities. I'm not going to recite them all, but just to let you know that the land of Babylon was inhabited by the descendants of Noah's son, Ham, and that um, they had Nimrod, this great warrior, also in their history, and that they had expanded and become pretty huge. So that's a lot of territory, it says, that they've taken. And I could see why they're a problem for Assyria, right, if they're expanding into their territory. So here's what was interesting to me, okay? I, I have often wondered, I'll be honest, you know, there are things in the Bible that that I either don't like or just don't make sense to me or I ponder. And I'm not afraid to say that. And Every time, I know I've shared this with you guys uh, many times, but many times when I go digging into those things that I don't like, I find cool stuff that actually explains it a little further and actually grows my faith deeper. So I'll be honest, I have wondered before, like how the wicked inhabitants of Canaan came to be, right? I mean, God instructed his people to go forth and conquer the promised land, and he gave them victory after victory when they were obeying him. So did God create a whole civilization of people just to later wipe them out? I mean, that seems unfair, right? But we know that God is fair and just, so there must be more to it. Well, here we see God promising to wipe out yet another civilization, this time the Babylonians. But if we do a little digging, scripture reveals that these Babylonians, as I said, were descended from Noah's son, Ham. And that, that alone was so exciting to me because it, it answered that question that I've long had. So no, God did not create people just for the sole purpose of being destroyed. He created them to love. And at one time, these were God's special people whom he called to be holy because he was holy. He warned them. He tried to work with them, but their hearts were wicked. So wicked that they had to finally be punished by a just and holy God. And we know that the wages of sin is death because Jesus hadn't come yet. Right? I like that. I like that continuity in scripture. Okay, verse 2 says, raise a, a signal flag on the bare hilltop, call up an army against Babylon, wave your hand to encourage them as they march into the palaces of the high and mighty. 
Now, Easy English says that raise a flag is a picture in words and that in battle, the commander's flag would be flying high for all to see. He was in full control of his forces. Um, and that was the symbol of his control over the situation. So then verses three through five. I, the Lord, have dedicated these soldiers for this task. Yes, I have called mighty warriors to express my anger, and they will rejoice when I am exalted. Hear the noise on the mountains. Listen as the vast army armies march. It is the noise and shouting of many nations. The Lord of heaven's armies are called, has called this army together. They come from distant countries and beyond the farthest horizons. They are the Lord's weapon to carry out his anger. With them, he will destroy the whole land. So, you know, God has power to control foreign nations on behalf of his people. We see that here again. And these nations will be his agents. They, they are carrying out his judgment. Just kind of lets you know, um, like we didn't already know, that God is fully capable of that. And then verses 6 through 9 um, just kind of talks about the coming terror and how helpless they're going to be against the Almighty and that he has them set for destruction. And they will be fearful. Verse 9 says, For see, the day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be made desolate and all the sinners destroyed with it. So it's the day of reckoning. Um, it is coming. And on that day, people will clearly see what God is doing. They will have no doubts or reservations. They will know for sure that it is the one true God. And the date, they don't know. He doesn't tell Isaiah the date. This is a secret to God. And he is the only one who knows. The next part is what really gripped me and what I kind of dug into a little bit more. This was a big nugget for me. The heavens will be black above them. The stars will give no light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will provide no light. Okay, now you can imagine the fear that would ensue, right? All of a sudden, you're walking around on earth, doing your thing, feeding the animals, going to work, and all of a sudden, the heavens go black. You don't even see stars. There's no sun, there's no light from the sun, no light from the moon. It is complete darkness. Now, notice it doesn't say that the sun, moon, or stars will blow up or disappear. The sun will be dark when it rises, because the scripture says when it rises, but it will still rise. And the moon and stars will still be there, but they will give no light. So yeah, God can control the light. And by this point in history, God has done this once before. Remember the plagues in Egypt, uh, the plague of darkness when God was about to free his people from captivity and deliver them from Egypt. Darkness was all around except for an isolated light just above the area where the Israelites lived. And perhaps the people of God could take comfort this time if they knew the scriptures, because if they remembered that the first time God blocked out the light, he freed them from oppression right after. So could they anticipate a freedom to come? I don't know, maybe. And then later we know that God does this 
light thing. He causes everything to go black again after Jesus suffers and dies on the cross. We'll read about that in the New Testament. If you don't already know about that, you should. Um, But the sky goes dark after Jesus dies on the cross. And is it just a coincidence that in both situations, God used this sign to free his people? Is that a possibility? Once from oppression, right? And once from sin. And could this be yet another scripture with a hidden double meaning? Including this time in Babylon, God will have blocked out the sun a total of three times, right? And the third time was after Jesus died. And then Jesus rose on the third day. And we know that God loves the number three, right? So maybe this darkness over Babylon is also a sign to his people that they are about to find a new freedom. I, You know, I don't know. But it's no small thing that the heavens go black, <laughs> that, cause, that God causes that darkness um, when he is light and he removes that light. That's like removing himself. Um, verse 11 and 12, I, the Lord, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sin. I will crush the arrogance of the proud and humble the pride of the mighty. I will make people scarcer than gold, more rare than the fine gold of Ophir. So God will punish the proud. We see this in scripture. He does that. He has to do that. Um, and few people will remain, but we do know that God always, um, spares some people. Um, but this is Babylon. This is not Judah. This is talking about a different land. This is not all God's people. I mean, they were originally, but they're not now, obviously. And few people will remain. For I will shake the heavens, the earth will move from its place, and the Lord of heaven's armies, when the Lord of heaven's armies displays his wrath in the day of his fierce anger. I looked up several versions of this scripture and they all say that the earth will move from its or her place. It's interesting that they call that some uh, versions of the Bible call earth a her. (laughs) Um, But that seems like more than an earthquake to me. So that would be like an earthquake would be localized, right? Like along a fault line. But to say that the earth moves from its place that's a bigger statement. So I'm, I didn't go digging. I just noticed that. And we'll see if there's any hint about that later, because that was strange to me. So, okay. Verse 14, everyone in Babylon will run about like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd. They will try to find their own people and flee to their land. Now, the people of Babylon are running around looking for family and trying to get the heck out. They would they are literally running for their lives. And then verse 15 tells us why, because anyone who is captured will be cut down, run through with a sword. And it goes into the horrible atrocities that they will do that these, and God, verse 17 says, look, I will stir up the Medes against Babylon. God is stirring up the enemy. I mean, that's what this whole passage is about in his fury and his anger. And that enemy is going to be absolutely ruthless. They will hurt women. They will hurt children and even babies. And that was unusual. I wish I could skip this part. No one likes to hear about women and children being hurt. 
especially when God is behind it all and controls all of these things. And so it just, I don't like it, I know, um, but we see just how ruthless these soldiers were. And so God, if he's stirring up the Medes, it doesn't give us description. I mean, I, I don't know how he did that. We don't know. Did he just incite anger or hatred uh, for the Babylonians from the Medes? Or was it jealousy because the Babylonians had this huge spread with all these big, beautiful, glorious, you know, buildings and they were prideful. And I guess that's maybe an easy place to hate if you have a power issues. I don't know. Um, But the way that the Medes soldiers killed the babies and the and the children and had really no pity for humanity in that way that was not typical attackers usually showed mercy for babies and children especially and verse 17 says no amount of silver or gold will tempt them not to attack so they will not be bribed by the king of babylon there's not going to be any treaties or alliances um this is gonna happen God is willing this to happen and nothing will come between God and his plan for this destruction. The Medes, incidentally, um, Easy English points out that the Medes came from Persia, which is now Iran, and they joined forces with the Persian army in the attack that destroyed Babylon in the year 539 BC. And that's a while after Isaiah's death. So that'll come later that we'll, we will read about this actually happening. So verse 19 and 20, Babylon, the most glorious of kingdoms, the flower of the Chaldean, of Chaldean pride will be devastated like Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed them. We know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Remember Lot running away from it with his family, his wife turned and ah, turned to salt. And those cities were destroyed with fire and brimstone. Um, this time God's using the enemy army to do the trick, but the effect is the same. And verse 20 says, Babylon will never be inhabited again. It will remain empty for generation after generation. So easy English says today, what remains of Babylon's beautiful buildings and impressive avenues lies underneath many feet of sand. So still desolate, never to be inhabited again. Then it goes into all the animals and how they would move into uh, the town. And and basically it would be town of hyenas and jackals and no place that anybody ever wanted to be. Then we end with Babylon's days are numbered. It's time of destruction will soon arrive. Fun stuff. They used to be God's people, descendants of Noah, um, his son Ham and all of his descendants. And they had gotten proud. They had a long history of being proud and arrogant, and God has had enough, and they would have become a major enemy to, or they will, and we will see that play out in scripture, they will become a major enemy to Judah, and so God has promised through Isaiah that he will take care of this. So... I still don't have time to say my story. This uh, ran too long, but I do have a good God story. And if I ever have a lesson with, I don't have a ton of stuff to say, I'll be able to share it with you. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that, but um, I'm glad that there's so much good meat here in this word. So um, we can do it another time. 
I hope you all have a great day. I will talk to you soon.